The Biden administration is rolling out its new major economic proposal, promising to create huge numbers of jobs and enact policies beneficial to working people. But what is this plan really? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from pandemics or itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com and that's rdwolff.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining. Okay, we're going to talk mainly today about the big news, the big, big news about the economy. President Biden and the Biden administration rolling out what is described as a massive massive infrastructure plan, a $3 trillion plan coming as it does on top of the $1.9 trillion relief package that was passed a couple weeks ago. A lot is being made about how this is huge. It's so much money. And then I was thinking about it, Richard, and I was thinking like, wait, that's three years of the Pentagon's budget. I mean, the budget technically is $750 or $760 billion. But when you look at the money in the Department of Energy for military spending, it's about a trillion a year, which over three years would be three trillion. Anyway, in your opinion, is this a big story? Yes, it is. It is a big story, although uh, not quite in the way that the Biden administration is spinning it. It's a big story historically, and I want to take a moment to explain it. The capitalist economic system that we live in that we live under, has shown itself here in the United States to be uniquely incapable of preparing for or managing the viral pandemic. Once again, the basic statistic, which dwarfs everything else. The United States has 4% of the world's people and 20% of the world's deaths from the coronavirus. We are a very rich country. We have a highly developed medical system. There must be something very deeply amiss in our economic organization so that the capacity we have failed so dismally 
to protect the public health, which has to be the number one or certainly among the top three priorities of any economic system. And what the Biden infrastructure proposal, the three trillion you refer to, what it shows is that the same U.S. capitalism that could not prepare for and could not manage a viral epidemic half as well as many, many other countries with much less developed medical systems and much less in the way of resources. We're now learning that that same economic system, capitalism, has been unable to maintain the infrastructure of the United States. That is, private enterprises, sometimes on their own, sometimes working with the governments that they largely control, have let slide our roads, our railways, our harbors, internet systems, and so on. So badly have they been neglected that the government has to, yep, come in and rescue the failures of private capitalism. Just like the government had to provide subsidies to the pharmaceutical companies to produce the vaccines we need and had to provide subsidies so that everybody could get a vaccine shot and earlier subsidies to provide testing. So now we're going to get subsidies to dozens of major industries to do the kind of infrastructure updating that they failed to do in the past. And in the process, if you add up the nearly $2 trillion spent on the COVID relief program passed a couple of weeks ago, and now the $3 trillion proposed and likely to pass in one form or another for infrastructure, we're, we're approaching $5 trillion of massive government support for a capitalism that is literally now on life support. And here's the biggest irony of all. Much of this is defended, advanced, celebrated on the basis of our needing to compete with the different system in China. Hello, this is what the Chinese do. They have a powerful government that comes in and shapes and influences how the larger economy, both public and private, work. And that's exactly what the Trump administration did in imposing those tariffs, in cutting those taxes, and now the Biden administration goes them one better by an even more massive government shaping, controlling, regulating through the power of spending vast amounts of money. I'd like to talk about what the risks of this program are, but I think those are less important than to understand what is being shown by this program in terms of the failures of that so-called private capitalist system, which used to boast that it wanted the least possible government, that it was the private system that solved problems and the government that created them. Well, what we're seeing now is the exact opposite. The government is saving a system that was not able either to save itself or to save us from the pandemic. Yeah, it's such an important point, Richard. And when you think about how the U.S. used the free market, private enterprise, 
and the functioning of this so-called free market in America, in a way, the main talking point about the efficiency of the system, the fact that the system incentivized innovation, the fact that the system could work without government subsidy. One comes to mind, like when I was young, the model of this was the auto industry. You know, it was Ford and General Motors and Chrysler, the big three. Of course, at one time there was 300 auto companies, but, you know, through monopoly, expand or die, you know, economics of capitalism, we, we were down to three. But nonetheless, it was considered the jewel of private enterprise and the big selling point for America. And then you think back just 10 years ago, without direct government intervention, GM, Ford, Chrysler, they'd all have gone down the tube. I mean, it was they were bankrupt in 2009, and the American government came in and said, we're going to restore you, we're going to bail you out, we're going to be the lender of last resort, you're good. Of course, while contracts are inviolable, normally the contract you have with United Auto Workers, not so inviolable, you can rip that up and start over again, such that in the new bailout provisions, starting pay for workers, for auto workers in Detroit. The new hires was $13, $14 an hour. Again, talk about that. And because nowadays, I mean, younger people might not realize how important Detroit was in terms of this propaganda uh, effort by American capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it is a perfect analogy for what is going on in the country as a whole. If you go back to the 1970s, for example, uh, you had the big three in uh, Detroit. You had a booming automobile industry. American presidents would bring foreign dignitaries to Detroit to show them the great success of capitalism. Look at this city, which is, you know, in the prairie of the Midwest, and it became the center of global capitalism uh, with its marquee automobile industry that has revolutionized travel and location of people's uh, cities and homes and suburbs and all the rest. And it was even boasted, look at the salaries they get as if this was the gift of the automobile industry rather than the hard-fought victory of the United Auto Workers Union. And then they would boast even further, look, there are even African-Americans working in these auto factories, earning good pay. Look at the progress being made in race relations by the fact that these were not only white workers. So it was the boast of boasting in 1970. The population then just shy of 2 million residents of Detroit. So now fast forward to today. Let's start with the population because that says it all. The population of Detroit now is in the neighborhood of 700,000 people. That is 1.3 million fewer people more than half the people of Detroit were driven out of the city because there were no jobs, because the capitalist automobile industry made two basic decisions. The first was to automate, to replace workers with machines and thereby deny those workers a job. 
thereby denying them an income, thereby destroying the local stores, which didn't have customers anymore because those auto workers had lost their jobs. And the second thing they did was to move production out of Detroit, first to other parts of the United States, then to Mexico and Canada, and now to China and the rest of the world, Brazil and so on, moving the jobs to where they can pay workers much less. And that, of course, denied the workers of Detroit, white and black, decent jobs, decent incomes, etc. So it's a collapsed place. The city is in large parts empty. Houses that sit vacant, every third house burnt out and sitting there as a burnt out hulk. I've been to Detroit recently, traveling through the city. It's a depressing experience, only made worse by a handful of glitzy buildings in downtown that do nothing to erase what they are surrounded by. And that's what's happening to the country as a whole, with a few exceptions. So yes, it's a very instructive story. On the way out, they were able to get government subsidies. That is, they were able to get the bailout in 2008, 9, and 10, money that the government gave to them. The biggest award the government has ever given any company was $50 billion given to General Motors. So yes, we are now seeing the government being the lender of last resort. The Federal Reserve now lends directly to corporations across the board. And now the government is buying everything in sight from uh, the infrastructure articles to everything else. Again, let me draw your ironic appreciation to the fact that in China, the government is likewise the lender of last resort. And the government is likewise the purchaser of a vast array of goods that sustain the economy, especially when it's having problems. What the United States is doing is competing against a society which it is becoming more and more like with each passing year. And the ironies of all of this should not be lost on anyone. With this addition, all of this is being paid for by debt. Everyone should understand the $2 trillion just spent for, for relief, that's not based on any tax increase. That's based on borrowing. The government decided not to tax corporations and the rich to raise the money to save this country in its period of pandemic-related suffering. No, no, no. It's borrowing the money from the same people, the corporations and the rich. Nobody else lends to the United States government. It's borrowing the money, which means the money has to be paid back to them, and they earn interest while they wait for the money to be paid back to them. That is very good for the corporations when you compare it to what they might have faced if the money had been raised in taxes. And that has to be understood as the danger lurking in the background, that all of this is being paid for with an enormous debt to a very slim part of our population that all the rest of us are one way or another going to have to honor. This is not an efficient arrangement, and it is an arrangement peculiarly designed to pander to corporations and the rich. China is, as of 2019, and maybe even before, the top country by car sales in the world. Just listen to these numbers. 2019, car sales in China, 21.4 million units. 
which accounts for 33% of the world's car sales. The next four countries, that would be the US, Japan, Germany, and India, they account for 57% in total. So US, Japan, Germany, and India account for 57%, but China by itself, one out of every three autos sold in the world is sold in China. And what's remarkable, and this came up in that Alaska meeting between Blinken and Chinese diplomats, including the top guy from the Politburo, who in his rebuttal said about American investment in China, he said, American companies have come to China. They've done very well. They've made a lot of profit. And we didn't make them come. And I thought, yeah, that's right. I mean, nobody put a gun to their head and said to Ford, which moved so much of its auto production to China. I mean, Ford in particular, but others too. So much of its auto production went to China. They went because they could make super profits. And the irony of ironies is that China decided not to be a neo-colony of America, decided not to simply be the assembler at the last stage of production and only be the sort of plateau or foundational place for the export of products. It took the technology, it learned the technology, it included joint partnerships with American companies such that the Chinese could access, acquire, and then use technologies that had been monopolized by Western corporations. And they grew and they developed. They wanted to lead the life that people in Western affluent capitalist countries lived. That's not a crime to want a better standard of living. And today they account for 33% of all car sales in the world. And now Biden, as you said in the beginning, all the Biden administration officials are motivating this big spending plan, the $3 trillion, not because America desperately needs it, unlike last year when they didn't have it or the year before when we didn't have it, but in order to compete with China and then confronting China as a national security threat rather than what it really is, which is an economic competition that proved itself on the world market to be more efficient than the Americans. Go ahead. The implications of this are extremely important. They start with this point about nobody holding a gun to the head of these corporations. The Chinese uh, said to the American corporations the same thing they said to the British, the French, the German, the Italian, and the Japanese, all of whom moved enormous portions of their productive capabilities into China, and all for the same reasons. Number one, cheap, efficient, disciplined workers, which the Chinese had in abundance, particularly low-wage people with good skills and good work discipline. And the second reason was that the Chinese economy was growing faster than any of those other countries, which means its market was expanding. That's why they are able to buy one out of three cars, because you've raised the real wages of Chinese workers over the last 30 years far faster than wages went up in any other countries like the United States or Western Europe, India, or anywhere else. So the corporations from America and Japan and England and so on were facing lower wages and the fastest growing market. Either one of those reasons would have drawn those corporations to go there. But having both reasons in effect at the same time, well, that was way too much. 
And the Chinese said, you're welcome to come and hire our workers. And you're welcome to come and sell your products to our workers. But we want something from you in exchange. We want partnerships. We want you to share your technology. We want you to share your wisdom that you've accumulated in running these businesses. That's what you can give us because we're giving you something. Nobody required these foreign corporations moving into China to agree to this deal. They agreed because what they got was for them worth more than what they were giving up. To call this in retrospect intellectual thievery is whining. It's, it's a government trying to spin what was done by private capitalists for the profits they got as if something untoward, as if something illegitimate was hustled on them. That's the way Mr. Trump spoke. And that's apparently the way Mr. Biden plans to speak as well. But, you know, it reeks of whining. It's the whining of an economic system that is losing the competition with what used to be a poor and backward country, but is neither of those anymore and is, in fact, leading in a number of industries, which wasn't the plan and which wasn't the expectation. And what you're seeing is not really a policy so much as it is, and this is very interesting historically, that the United States under Trump and now under Biden is doing a copy of what the Chinese have done. It's trying to catch up to what the Chinese have done. It's a wonderful historical reversal We used to look upon the Japanese economy earlier and now the Chinese as doing a good bit of copying of what had been done in the West. And there was something to that. There was copying going on, as there usually has been. But now that the tables have been turned, the copying is going the other way. And nothing illustrates it more than these massive government interventions, this bold admission that leaving things to private capitalism is a policy that did not work, that is what has put us behind China, where the government plays a much more active role, and you're watching first Trump and now Biden replicate that experience in the hope of catching up. Richard, in the last five years, or six years actually, since I started a daily radio show podcast called Loud and Clear, and now the socialist program has taken its place, but during that past six years, I always made a point every year to interview the president or the executive director of an organization called the American Society of Civil Engineers. And I was always fascinated with the organization because one, they're Americans, and two, they're engineers, and three, they have a real understanding of the state of America's infrastructure. And it was their critique, which I was always shocked that it wasn't like in mainstream media, like as a top news story, their own appreciation or evaluation of American infrastructure was so devastating And what they kept saying over and over again each year was, we are shocked not because of the state of the infrastructure, because it's so bad, but that more bridges aren't actually falling down. 
Uh, that's what they would tell me when I would interview them. And here's Forbes magazine, new article out. The United States hasn't invested in upgrading its infrastructure in a long time. The U.S. has a C- rating for its degraded infrastructure, according to the American Society of Civil Engineers. The costs of continuing to make Band-Aid repairs on the nation's once proud roads, dams, airports, and other structures are soaring. So instead of spending the money to actually build a new bridge, what the U.S. is doing, what the Congress is doing, or state legislatures they're patching the bridges, they're putting band-aids on them, and it's actually more expensive. And then you think about what happened during the Obama era when Obama was, you know, quote, pivoting towards Asia, trying to disengage from being bogged down in endless war in the Middle East to compete more forcefully with China, to use money in the United States to build up the infrastructure. I don't know if you remember this, but the Obama administration got it passed through Congress. I think in 2009, when the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate and had the White House, money to go to states for the building of high-speed rail. And the federal government agreed to pay, I believe it was 90% of an East Coast to West Coast of Florida bullet train, high-speed train. And there was no high-speed trains in Florida or almost anywhere in the United States. And the state of Florida rejected the money because the state of Florida would have to put in like 5 or 10%. But it was the ideological orientation of the government, the state government and the legislature in Florida, where they said, no, like an ideological, it was kind of like not wearing a mask. It was like, no, we're not going to do something that would make perfect sense because we have this ideological predilection that says any government spending, especially if it comes from a Democrat, is bad. And then you have a couple of years later, the government passing a tax bill that, you know, it's the same thing as spending because it's taking money from the federal government to the tune of two or three trillion dollars, most of which is for the rich. And all the right wing and the Democrats all said, yeah, we're cool with that. Anyway, again, the American Society of Civil Engineers, everyone read their reports. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, it's important to understand, and perhaps you and I disagree just a little bit here. Yes, there is this ideological stuff about not having the government intervene, even though, as I tried to explain, everything that's going on now is a massive program of government intervention, which, by the way, happened under Trump as well, uh, slapping tariffs all over the place. That's a tax. A tariff is just a name for a particular kind of tax. The conservative Republican Trump administration slapped taxes on virtually everything that Americans buy from abroad. This is a massive government intervention in markets. It is a massive tax imposition. I mean, it's extraordinary how you are able to spin this in this country as somehow being against big government. But I don't think ideologically is what it's about. I think the reason that in Florida, they did not want to pick up even 10% of this great program is that they would have had to pick up 10%. They would have had to go and tax the businesses, the rich, and the mass of people in Florida. And they're very scared, the politicians. That is a recipe for being defeated at the polls. They don't want to do it. And they would much rather 
be able to go to their constituents in the crazy politics of the United States saying, we don't have to raise your taxes and going to their business donors, we don't have to raise your taxes and going to their wealthy donors, we don't have to raise your taxes. That's a much more appealing political pitch than we do have to raise your taxes, but please join us in applauding a super fast train. That's a no-brainer for these people, and they made their decision based on that. And you see it everywhere. Politicians in this country for 50 years have been deeply proud of either not raising taxes or cutting taxes. Even the Democrats have had to get on that bandwagon because the Republicans rode it to such wonderful voter success. So they're not going to do it. They don't care what the proposal is. Restore the bridge, restore the harbor, give us an updated electronic system, let us compete with China. None of those arguments count at all in a society monomaniacally focused on not raising taxes. It's a mantra in this society, and it's an ironic confirmation of a prediction made many years ago by that famous fellow, Karl Marx, when he said capitalism's own internal contradictions will bring it low. It's not a question of external enemies, however much our leaders want us to focus on them. The danger to capitalism has always been from inside, from a political and economic system that destroys itself in exactly the manner that the interaction of our politics and economics by destroying our infrastructure puts us at a disadvantage in world economic terms right now. Excellent, excellent point, Richard. With that said, I think we should try to end our segment with a humorous note. I'm thinking about the Wall Street Journal editorial page. If if people want to just cheer themselves up and get a good laugh, you can always go to the Wall Street Journal opinion page or the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Here's one three days ago. The headline, this is Alicia Finley. She is a Wall Street Journal editorial board writer, but she has her own op-ed on the opinion page. Get this, Richard. Capitalism is what will defeat COVID. (laughs) I guess everybody knows that. The vaccine revolution didn't happen on its own. It's a product of decades of planning and investment. Here she writes, behold the paradox of this pandemic moment. Large corporations are political villains derided on the left and the right. Yet the main and perhaps only reason the COVID-19 scourge is easing is vaccines developed by big pharma. And then she goes on and she talks about Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and the wonderfulness of intellectual property rights. She doesn't talk about Sputnik V vaccine or the Chinese vaccine. So apparently those vaccines actually don't exist. But anyway, Richard, capitalism will defeat COVID. We're close to the finish line. Thank you, capitalism. Yes, I think it's a very interesting thing that such a headline finds its way to the top in the Wall Street Journal, because, of course, the reality is that everything that's happening over the last 12 months in this country, under Trump and now under Biden, is a desperate effort to avoid the opposite, namely that the COVID virus 
exposes and undermines capitalism. And that's why they're spending money like there's no tomorrow and building up the debt like it never was and running deficits like they've never done before and writing headlines like that. This is the desperate hope of people who have a sense that it's all slipping away. That is Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf joins us every Wednesday in this segment of the Socialist Program. Richard, you will be unavailable next week, but we'll be back with you two weeks from today. I want to encourage our audience to check out Richard Wolf's webpage. His organization is Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. And be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.